Hello again, I'm Jim Bartlett. Welcome back to my podcast, which is a companion to my website. The hits just keep on coming. If you're new to this podcast, you should know it doesn't have much in the way of production value. It's just me talking. If you enjoyed my earlier batch of tales from my radio career, and even if you did not, here's more of them. This episode is called Pressure Night. If you work as a radio DJ long enough, sooner or later you'll be asked to introduce a band. This task is often less glamorous than it appears. I introduced Ario Speedwagon once, and although all the members were walking around backstage, I was never personally introduced to any of them. When I introduced Steppenwolf, I never set eyes on John Kay, who apparently stayed on the bus until 30 seconds before the show started. Sometimes, however, it would be different. Before I introduced the Guess Who, I was taken aboard their tour bus to meet the road manager, who turned out to be original bass player Jim Cale. He'd had the presence of mind to protect the Guess Who trademark after the band's heyday was over, and he was running the tour like the business the band was to him. When Jefferson Starship played at the local summer festival, I was introduced to Paul Kantner and Jack Cassidy, who'd been in the original Jefferson Airplane, and Prairie Prince, former drummer from the Tubes, who had joined the latest edition of the band. We spent a half hour just hanging out backstage, talking and listening to the opening act. It was so pleasant, and they were so normal, that I had to keep reminding myself who they were, that Kantner and Cassidy were present at the creation. San Francisco, summer of love, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. Legendary figures from rock's most significant era, and here they were telling me about their lives on the road for these many years. When Kantner died a few years ago, there were many stories describing him as prickly, but he certainly wasn't on that night. The best part came when the opening act was finished. There's often a gap between the local DJ introduction and the appearance of the band. For instance, Steppenwolf's road manager had told me to say, in a moment, John Kay and Steppenwolf, but the moment lasted 10 minutes. On this night, somebody from the festival came backstage and said, okay, Jim, you're on, and I bid goodnight to Kantner, Cassidy, and Prince and made ready to go do my shtick. But as I was leaving, Kantner grabbed me by the sleeve and said, wait, go up with us. So we all took the stage together, which means that for two minutes, I was a member of Jefferson Starship. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. In another town, my radio station promoted a show featuring John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, who were a big deal for a couple of years in the middle of the 80s, thanks to their appearance in the movie Eddie and the Cruisers. I was supposed to interview Cafferty backstage, backstage being the locker room of the basketball arena where the show was being held. When the road manager took Ann and me to meet him, he was dozing on one of those bolted-to-the-floor benches between two rows of lockers. Cafferty sat up, rubbed his face, and shook hands with us. And before I could ask him a question, he asked me one. Where am I? He was neither drunk nor stoned, like many rock stars who've asked that question, He'd simply gotten on the bus the night before and headed for the next town without worrying about where it was. On a different night, Eddie Money came to our town. This was also in the middle of the 80s when he was at the peak of his fame and starting a new tour. Why he chose to start it in Nowhere, Illinois, I don't know, but he did. I was invited to interview him at the afternoon sound check. When Ann and I got there, he was putting the band through their paces, stopping songs to bark out criticism and instructions. He was pretty intimidating and he was no less so when we finally sat down to talk. It was then I realized that the batteries in my tape recorder were dead. I let the local TV station talk to him and violated every speed limit to get to a place where I could buy some new ones. Money was all business during our interview, too. When I mentioned how hard he'd been working the band during the sound check, he said, This is the first night, and it's important. This is our job. I never thought of it like that. 
To me, a rock band's life was a rolling party where they took time out for a couple of hours every night to play. As a result of meeting Eddie Money, when I met Jim Cale years later, Cale's role made a lot more sense to me. My radio station had run a contest in conjunction with the Eddie Money Show in which a listener and a guest won tickets and backstage passes. Somewhere there's a picture of me with the two women posing with them as if I were the rock star. The Eddie Money Show is the only one I ever saw in its entirety from backstage. It was pretty great, except I somehow lost the hat that I'd been wearing that night. Too bad. I missed that hat. A radio station's rate card shows what it charges for different classes of advertising. When the sales rep first handed our station's rate card to the new client she was wooing, he burst out laughing. The rep sat there mortified, and her mortification got even worse when the client called to his partner in the outer office. Come in here, you've got to see this! She thought they were laughing because the cost of the spots was too high. In fact, they were laughing because they'd just come to town from Dallas, Texas, and they couldn't believe how cheap it was to get on the radio in nowhere, Illinois. Some relationships between radio stations and clients are just business. With these guys who ran the bar at the local Holiday Inn, it was synergy. We were the lone top 40 station in a college town, so they benefited from being on our air all the time. They'd run a hefty schedule every week plugging what they were doing on the weekend. When they became the hot party place as a result, we benefited from our association with them. It was a beautiful friendship. One of their more unusual promotions was called Pressure Night. Starting at 9 o'clock, tap beer would drop to 25 cents, and the taps would continue to be 25 cents until somebody used the restroom. Then it was back to full price. It would usually last about 20 minutes, and the person who broke the seal would usually be somebody who was clueless about the whole thing. We would frequently do a live broadcast from the place on a Friday or Saturday night, and the remote breaks always sounded great because it was clear on the air that it was packed and people were having a blast. Among those having the most fun was the radio crew, me, Ann, the sales rep, and anybody else from the station who happened to be there. The bartenders had standing orders to take good care of us, and we rarely had to buy a drink. One night I realized around the midpoint of the broadcast that I had had far too much to drink for somebody who had to speak on the radio, After that, I resolved that on future remotes, I would stick to Diet Pepsi until I was completely off the air. One Halloween night, the weather was miserable. It had been raining sideways all day, and the temperature was about 40. We weren't expecting very many people to venture out for our Halloween party on such an awful night, particularly in costume, yet venture they did. By 10 o'clock, the bar was full and the party was raging. The other bars in town, some of which had promoted their Halloween events on our air, were dead. We had the only real party in town. Somewhere in my archives, I have a tape of the remote we did that night. It sounds like I am at the greatest blowout in the history of mankind. It may have been before I started following the no drinking on remote rule. The success of that rainy Halloween night felt like a personal triumph. It was as intoxicating as anything the bartenders could have served me. At that time, I could not imagine any life better than being the hotshot local DJ. The fact that I made practically no money doing it couldn't have mattered less. When I was in a crowd with a mic and a set of headphones and everybody knew who I was, it felt like the only thing in the world worth doing. Okay, new story. One hot summer afternoon, I nearly killed one of my radio station's engineers. But before I can tell you how it happened, I have to tell you this. When a station's studios are in one physical location and its transmitter is in another, They are connected by something called a studio-to-transmitter link, or STL. In days of yore, it could be a wired link, a telephone line, or a small transmitter feeding the big one. Today, it can be a digital connection of some sort. 
On this particular afternoon, in the basement of the radio station where the engineering shop was located, an engineer named Don was tinkering when something shorted out on his workbench and fried the STL. I was in the main studio upstairs when the signal dropped off the air. It wasn't an occasion for panic because it wasn't all that unusual for a transmitter to go out. When it dropped off, it was the jock's job to turn it back on. Trouble was, I could see that the transmitter in the remote location was still on, but nothing I was doing in the studio was getting there. Fixing that was beyond my expertise. Don came upstairs and explained what had happened. The protocol in the case of a studio failure was to box up a bunch of tape cartridges containing music and commercials, unhook the studio cart machines, put everything in the station van, and go over to the transmitter site. It had an emergency studio we could use until repairs could be made. I don't know how old Don was. He'd been at the station since God was a boy, and he'd been promised a job for as long as he wanted to work. I'm sure that I fumed as he slowly unwired the cart machines. I may have urged him to hurry, perhaps gently, but perhaps not. I loaded up the music and commercial carts and anything else I thought we'd need over there, grabbed the keys to the van, and raced out to the parking lot. Don eventually came tottering out with the cart machines, and we started for the transmitter site. Traffic was heavy, and it was clearly going to take longer than the usual five minutes to get there. It was hot that day, and the air conditioning in the van wasn't doing much. As I cursed the drivers in front of me, I noticed that Don, in the passenger seat next to me, was breathing heavily and did not look well at all. You okay, Don? Yeah, I'm fine, he said. Obviously not fine. I'm just a little winded. You gonna make it, I asked. Yeah, I'm fine. We eventually got to the transmitter site and into the ancient emergency studio, a relic of the 1940s, an old control board hammered out of metal, dials and buttons made of bakelite plastic with giant transcription turntables. We brushed off the dead flies and set to work. Don slowly wired up the cart machines, then went out to where the transmitter was and did the necessary voodoo to get the emergency studio live. I watched his labors with great concern, hoping he wouldn't drop dead on me, and that if he did, he'd do it after the studio was operational. To make a long story short, it took only a few minutes to get the station back on from the emergency studio, and Don didn't die until many years later. There's a postscript to this story. My boss had been out on his boat all that day. When he got home, his wife told him, You better call the office. They've been on from the transmitter site all afternoon. What are you talking about, he replied. I've been listening all afternoon, and I didn't hear anything out of the ordinary. Except for a few minutes of dead air as we fought the traffic, we'd managed to do almost everything we normally did on a random afternoon, and we'd done it so seamlessly that even the boss didn't notice. Somewhere in my archives, I have a memo that went out to the staff a couple of days later, praising Don and me to the skies for what we'd been able to accomplish. My boss was not generous with praise, especially not with me, so that was a memo I hung on to. I got my first part-time radio job when I was 19. Training then was a lot like training now. You watch another, more experienced jock while they explain what they're doing, and you ask questions. After a few sessions, the roles change. You do the job while the more experienced person watches. After a few sessions of this, you're left on your own. This kind of training is almost never enough, though. Sooner or later, something will happen that wasn't covered, and you'll have to decide how to handle it. It's nobody's fault. A person with a little savvy figures it out. A green young dope figures it out after a little while longer. When I was a boss, I had a variety of part-timers working for me. The ones who stick in my memory tend to be the ones who fucked up in some spectacular way, but I had some good ones, too. They were people I could stick into any shift and get a reasonably decent performance. I could depend on them to understand their jobs on a relatively deep level so they could diagnose and handle the inevitable weirdness on their own. 
They were willing to pitch in and do more, and they were simply fun to be around. One of the latter was named Dave. He was pretty good at his job and rarely made mistakes. Nevertheless, he lived in a state of perpetual anxiety about little things. One day Dave called me, not for the first time, to ask whether a particular piece of equipment was working properly. I answered his question with a question. Is there fire shooting out of it? Long pause. Well, no. Good. As long as there's not fire shooting out of it, you're okay. After that, he rarely had to call me again. Not everyone who worked for me was as thorough. Once I hired a college student to tend the automation and operate the transmitter on Saturday and Sunday nights, one night I came into the office to dead silence, which meant to me a catastrophic failure of either the automation or the transmitter. And there was a kid sitting calmly at a desk. What the hell's going on, I asked. He looked blankly at me for a second. Oh, you mean the speakers? I turned them down. I'm trying to study, and the music distracts me. I hated the hiring process, and I never felt like I was very good at it. I learned through bitter experience that some people interview a lot better than they perform. Some people will interview with you solely as leverage against another employer they'd rather work for. One of my stations paid for transportation to bring a candidate in for an interview, only to have her tell us at the end of it that she had already accepted another offer. We later found out she had family in the area and had scammed us for a free trip home. Long before you get to the interview stage, you have to pick through the applications. Back in the day, I was amazed at the number of horrid packages I would receive from job seekers. In an era before home word processing, you had to take your resume to the printer or fake it. I got letters and resumes filled with typos and corrected with ink or pencil. I got photocopies of photocopies. I got letters and resumes typed on lined loose-leaf paper or pulled from spiral notebooks, fringed edge and all. I got letters and resumes containing employment histories with gaps of several years. I got the names of references, but no contact information for them. The content of the cover letters was quite a smorgasbord, too. Some candidates were barely literate. Some were as unsubtle as used car salesmen, promising on-air work that would raise my ratings beyond the stratosphere and commercial production work that would make my clients taller and more handsome. These cover letters often came from people seeking their first job out of college. And like the resumes, these letters were occasionally handwritten, hand-corrected, and or obviously photocopied. Some were generic letters with my name filled in after the salutation, or even worse, with the generic salutation, Dear Program Director. People generally expect DJs to be a little bent, which gives us wide latitude for behavior. This often extends to cover letters, which can be a bit more flippant than they would be for other job applications in the working world. Letting a bit of your personality show in the cover letter can help get the recipient's attention and make him want to listen to your air check. But it's possible to go too far. I was hanging out in my boss's office one slow afternoon when he asked if I wanted to see the applications that came in from other candidates for the job I got. In the stack was this letter, which read as follows in its entirety. On such and such a date, I was fucked without the benefit of foreplay by my now former employer. Hire me and I'll deliver the female demographic. Wrong in so many ways, yes, but strangely beautiful, too, for its economy of language and for its bottomless impropriety. I'd like to think that it created an ex-DJ turned car salesman, but I fear that somewhere, some other program director got that letter and thought, hey, that's just the guy I'm looking for. The place where I got to read the letters was an elevator music station. The official industry term was beautiful music, but the place was not as tomb-like as you might expect. I'd been hired precisely because I was a jock with a personality, and that was what the station wanted. Another one of the jocks was a long-haired and very vocal Christian known behind his back as Junior Jesus. In addition to his weekday shift, he also did a Sunday morning gospel music show. 
He often received unsolicited cash contributions from grateful listeners, thereby fulfilling a fond wish of low-paid radio guys everywhere. Another jock had to support somewhere between two and five kids. We were never sure how many, and an extremely high-maintenance wife who stayed home with them. He would often walk the four miles to work because he couldn't afford to fix his broken-down car, and he wore eyeglasses missing a lens for quite a long time. My favorite characters at this station, however, were in the sales department. I briefly shared an office with a woman who was new to radio and who had spent the previous several years living in Central America. One winter's day, a dusting of snow fell, and she asked me, should I use the four-wheel drive on the way home? That won't be necessary, I told her. When it's time, you'll know it. She once asked me if I'd ever written any spots advertising artificial limbs, which I had not. She proceeded to call the Radio Advertising Bureau seeking sample copy for artificial limbs, only to be surprised when they laughed out loud at the idea, same as I had. My favorite story about her is about the time she got kicked out of a store by its owner. He had haughtily told her, I don't need to advertise. I already have more business than I can handle. Good for you, she shot back. Let's go out front and take your sign down. Another member of the sales department was an artist capable of knocking off beautiful abstracts in a few minutes using only a ballpoint pen on the back of a message slip. Admiring a drawing he'd given to another colleague, I asked him, Would you draw something for me sometime? Of course, he said. To tweak him, I asked, Can you do the one of the dogs playing poker? An abstract he painted hangs on the wall in our living room today. That station became a special place after a year or two. We became the tightest group of people I would ever work with. It was a mash mentality, the way people on the front lines stuck together in wartime, fighting mostly for each other. We fought against the enemy, other stations in the market, but also against clients and sometimes listeners. And as they did on MASH, we also banded together against our own commanders, the station's owner and management. I was at the elevator music station during the dying days of the format, back in the late 80s. One big problem we had was young media buyers at ad agencies. Our audience was the wealthiest in our market, with a high percentage of disposable income, but we couldn't shake down much national advertising money. Ads for car makers, chain restaurants, big box stores, and the like, which can translate to a lot of money, and which comes to you as if it fell from the sky. We were convinced that it was because the media buyers at the agencies were too young to understand the format's appeal, and they were more comfortable buying the stations they might listen to themselves. Anne, who was a media buyer in her 20s at the same time, denied that this could have been true. She told me, we buy stations by ratings, and if you've got the ratings, you'll get the money. But we weren't making it up. Elevator music stations across the country in markets of all sizes were suffering from the same thing. A perception by advertisers that everybody who listened was old and waiting for death, with no need or desire to buy anything except Ben Gay and a burial plot. But they were not. We once ran a contest in which the prize was two tickets to a show, an expensive dinner beforehand, and a limo ride to and from your house. The winners were a couple in their 50s who could not have been more typical of our audience. The next week we found out from the driver that the couple had sex in the limo on the ride home. We couldn't tell the story to media buyers or potential clients, although maybe we should have, but we frequently told it around the office because it made us feel a lot better about ourselves. One Saturday afternoon, I was on the air at the elevator music station when the phone rang. It was a guy who wanted to offer me some voiceover work. He said he was visiting family in our town, had heard me on the radio, and thought I was perfect for one of his clients. Although I suspect he was mostly trying to avoid paying a union voiceover guy from New York or Los Angeles or Chicago. The next Saturday, he showed up with some scripts for me to cut. They were for spots plugging a book by an author who claimed that Elvis Presley was still alive and that she had an audio tape to prove it. But they weren't radio spots. They were telemarketing robocalls. 
two thoughts entered my mind. The first was, this is kind of sleazy. The second was, the guy said he'd pay cash today. One of the spots was written for a terrible character voice, which the guy coached me into doing over my protests and against my better judgment. If anybody getting that call listened for more than 10 seconds, they were made of the toughest stuff on earth. So yes, my voice interrupted people at mealtime and nap time all across our great land, trying to sell them a ludicrous book. It was not the proudest moment of my career, but the guy paid cash that day. If you have enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you will visit my website, The Hits Just Keep On Coming, which you can easily find if you put that phrase into your favorite search engine. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, I hope you will consider coming back for another episode of it and listen to earlier episodes. You can find them at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher. You can also bookmark my SoundCloud or subscribe to my website to be notified about new episodes. If you're listening to this podcast on a platform where you can give it a like or a positive review, I hope you will do that. I'm Jim Bartlett. Thanks for listening.